Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. This is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. It will introduce you to experts in a wide range of fields relevant to the practice of clinical psychology, and I hope you'll find it engaging and informative. Today's guest on Clinically Thinking is Dr. Susan Simpson. Dr. Simpson is a clinical psychologist with over 20 years of experience applying schema therapy to a range of psychological problems, including complex trauma, personality, and eating disorders. She currently works clinically for the NHS at an inpatient eating disorders unit in Scotland and also in private practice. She is also the director for Schema Therapy Scotland and regularly supervises schema therapy trainees and runs workshops throughout Europe and in the Asia Pacific. She has published several research papers and has presented her findings globally. I first had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Simpson when we worked together at the University of South Australia, co-directing the psychology clinic. I owe my own passion for schema therapy to her kind and authentic influence. Dr. Simpson has since returned to Scotland a place she felt most at home and now lives in Dunblane, where every picture is a postcard. I wanted you to meet Susan because she has had a long-standing interest in rural and remote psychology and in fact was a pioneer in using telehealth to deliver psychological services. In the 1990s, she used simple phone lines to treat patients living in the remote Scottish islands of Shetland and Orkney. With all these years of experience, I knew Susan would have some thoughts and tips to offer those of us embracing telehealth, perhaps for the very first time in this age of COVID. She took time out between her hospital clients to speak with us today. Despite the wonders of modern communication connecting Scotland with, in this case, rural Australia, an occasional word of our conversation is swallowed by the ether. Ah, yes, uh, technology still has a little way to go. So, Susan, can I ask you how you got into schema therapy? Well, I originally did my, I guess, psychology master's in Australia. And I guess the, the emphasis at that point was it was mostly CBT, uh, still is, I guess, to a, to a large degree. Um, and I found that when I was working with more complex patients, um, people with high levels of comorbidity, that they would get stuck at a certain point, couldn't move any further forward. Um, as you know, people with personality issues, rigid personality traits, high levels of, of complexity. And so I was really attracted to schema therapy as a deeper level process therapy model, more able to deal with complexity, comorbidity, um, and able to develop a more sophisticated formulation that could take account of the whole transdiagnostic picture um, and also offers, as you know, more emotion-focused work. Uh, so really working beyond the intellectual change level. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I, I also became interested in applying it to ourselves as therapists, how, it, how our schemas affect our, our well-being in general. And I guess my special interest has always been working with complexity and trauma in the context of eating disorders. So did you do your early training with Jeff Young? Yes. So my, my early training was with 
initially with Jeff Young um, and Ganilla Foss from Norway um, and other various other trainers, including Michiel van Brieswijk, uh, Hani van Genderen and Marian Nadort, and also, of course, Arno Dance, so a, a wide range of trainers. And so how did you get from schema therapy with all its experiential work and so forth into the tele approach because it seems not a natural link between uh, schema therapy and the tele. I know that's something that you've done for a long time, having worked with you at the UniSA, that that's something that you do very naturally. So can you help me understand how that link came to be? Sure, yes. I mean, I guess they started as separate interests, really. I was, uh, I've always had a strong interest in rural and remote psychology and I'm, I'm from a rural area myself so I've, I've always been interested in in kind of serving the mental health needs of rural and outback populations um, and of course in Australia that's that's always been such a big issue because there have been so many rural populations that have been underserved because of geographical barriers uh, you know shortage of psychologists and so forth yes uh, and of course also there's the fly in fly out populations uh, who work offshore, uh, who were unable to access mental health services as well. So we needed to think creatively around providing health care. And um, I guess I started when I was living in the north of Scotland. Um, I worked for many years in Aberdeen and there was no psychology service to Shetland or Orkney at that time. So that was 20 years ago. And in those days, the only telepsychology or teleconferencing that was available was ISDN. So it was through the telephone wires, one, one audio line and one visual line. Uh, so it was a long way from what we've got today. And I set up a telepsychology clinic to Shetland and then Orkney. And so that was their first kind of adult mental health psychology service. Uh, and I would go up there once every three months, do some assessments. And then uh, in between, I would see those patients every week for their therapy sessions um and so you were a bit of a pioneer you were a bit of a pioneer yeah yes yes I I guess I was one of the first just you know um necessity is the mother of invention I guess that there was there were were a few other options that were available to these patients at that time um but uh it was a really nice balance of just going up and, and seeing people for as I say people would only get their assessment face to face and the rest of the work was by video link so you've got a long history of understanding how uh, uh, video or tele in any kind of way would work with all kinds of patients. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yes. I mean, I used it with all of all of the patients at that time, um, and we started researching it at the same time because there was very little out there at the time in terms of effectiveness, therapeutic alliance, and so forth. Um, and there's, there, there was a lot of reluctance uh, in the psychology world to really go there, uh, especially uh, there's been a lot of research kind of looking at uh, clinicians' attitudes and patients' attitudes to telepsychology. And it's often the clinicians that hold back and have lots of fears around uh, it won't work or, you know, what if something goes wrong or what if the, the there's no therapeutic alliance. Um, in fact, you know, we've done a lot of research, a lot of people have done a lot of research over the years and found the opposite, actually, that it's it's roughly equivalent. Some patients actually prefer video conferencing. Some patients are a little bit reluctant to start with, but give them 10 minutes, 15 minutes, a practice run. Most people are uh, very happy and comfortable using So how do you think that, my observation, for example, would be that 
therapists uh, are the ones who are still very hesitant in Australia anyway, very hesitant in this context of COVID to make the change for tele. Um, and they have been even before COVID was around, there was this hesitancy to embrace mm. any kind of tele. What do you think is the way forward to? I think, I mean, there are there are some really good training programs around that, that can, I think, help people to become more comfortable, learn uh, video conferencing etiquette, um, learn ways of applying it in a therapeutic setting. So that can that can go a long way, I think, to helping people. Um, as well, just becoming familiar with the evidence base, you know, because I think most people aren't aware there's already been a massive amount of research that's been done on this area. It's not brand new at all. It's just that people are not familiar with the, the evidence base. Um, and, you know, I think once people start to realise it's not a, a a poor cousin to face-to-face therapy at all, that um, that actually the evidence shows it's equivalent, that we shouldn't be charging less for telepsychology sessions, uh, that we should be valuing it. And, and actually for some patients, they value it even more than face-to-face therapy. So, uh, for example, people with social anxiety issues, people with agoraphobia, people with eating disorders who are very self-conscious about their bodies, the challenges certainly with eating disorders and telehealth, I've noticed um, just moving from the face-to-face to tele is, you know, seeing my client, seeing themselves, <laughs> you know, um, and, and having yes. that self-consciousness. Yes. It's right. It's very confronting, isn't it? You know, there you are. Hello, there you are. I can see you. You can see yourself and you can't get away from that. It's a, an, an, it provides a lot of opportunity from exposure work, doesn't it? Totally, totally. So you can start with them, you know, having it on so at least you can position yourself in the right spot, um, but then they can turn their picture-in-picture picture, uh, off if they want, if that's too confronting. And as you say, then start using it for exposure work. Um, I mean, yes. I think one of the beauties of telepsychology is that the patient has much more control. They're not in our territory. They're not on our turf. There's that. There's less of a power imbalance and so often people feel more able to open up to talk about things that are much more difficult to talk about face-to-face. Uh, there's less shame. There's more, because of that barrier, it provides a, a safety. And they, they have more control. So they can turn us up or turn us down. You know? <laughs> uh, they can make the picture of us smaller on their screen or bigger on their screen. So they can they can play with the intimacy, play a bit, a bit creative at their end and have more control over the therapeutic process. And that can really facilitate, I guess, you know, the therapeutic alliance and their sense of control and um, agency over the whole process. It seems, therefore, there can be some benefits actually in this kind of work once the therapist, once we get over ourselves a little bit and, you know, and, and, and uh, adjust to the change because I think you know some therapists working in this space we, we find it uncomfortable right and we're not sure about it and we we have the problem once we get over it then our clients generally embrace it no matter what yes. the problem is and then we can all get on and do the work so what do you think might be some of the challenges then um, in working in this space in you know in this current context that we find ourselves in with COVID which is likely we think to you know to go on for some time what do you think? Uh, what do you think schema therapy has to offer in this space? Well, I guess specifically schema therapy 
looks at, I guess, the way we cope with things and, and I guess, the context in which we perceive events. So, you know, even a crisis like this, any crisis is not completely external. Whatever uh, is happening in this situation is, I, I guess, our attitudes are being triggered, our schemas are being triggered. You know, there's a lot of, I guess, uh, a lot of people, including us as, as therapists ourselves, feeling vulnerable, feel, you know, being in touch with our own mortality, which we spend a lot of time avoiding most of the time. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unpredictability. This sort of thing, this vulnerability is uh, is something that most of us tend to be quite uncomfortable with and is, is very triggering. The stress of the situation is mm-hmm. is very triggering and, of course, made worse by all the media hysteria and um, and so forth, which is, which is going on in the background. And I guess the unpredictable nature of the stress caused by COVID-19 is likely to, you know, activate, could be vulnerability to harm and illness schemas, right. beliefs around abandonment, social isolation, um, that kind of negativity, pessimism, everything's going to turn out badly, we're all going to die kind of thinking, um, emotional deprivation, people feeling cut off from each other, uh, people feeling more isolated, some people feeling kind of completely enmeshed and overwhelmed by living with um, families. So, you know, there'll be a lot of different schemas being triggered, both, you know, at a general level by by covid 19 and also I guess within every household uh, people will be living in very close proximity and schemas will be triggered in that context. So how do you and that's just the therapist. That's just the therapist yeah. yeah. So it seems like for therapists it's really important for us to work out what our own stuff is you know for me work work out my own overcompensator over over controlling mode and you know the tendency to put on the cape and be the superhero you know but in in a more seriously then connect to the own to our own vulnerability so if we face that and then get the healthy healthy adult uh you know running the show yeah uh, most of the time then we're in i guess we're in a better position to help our clients in whatever kind of stuff they're going through that's been triggered by covid is that what you think absolutely and i think we have to kind of resist that hustle culture that we live in where it's all about the productivity it's all about you know how am i going to get my work all of my work done and and more while this this is happening and i think it's about really stopping and at the moment making space for reflective thinking and and not trying to get things done because it's it's that reflective thinking that will I guess change how we see the world that we're living in and lead to more profound changes in the way that we treat our planet we treat animals we treat you know each other as we move forward. Yeah I saw your um, post on Facebook about that about reflecting and and stopping and taking stock Mm -hmm. you know and not expecting uh, as much of ourselves as we might ordinarily because we are in this kind of crisis and you know, day one, you might plan to do meditation and body weights, but day four, yes. you'll be pouring pasta on your ice cream, you know. <laughs> so just in self-isolation to sort of expect this from ourselves. I guess, you know, one thing I'm thinking, and I wonder what you think about this, is just just to um, be a bit more patient with people and to realise we're not at our best, you know, yeah. we're stuffing yeah. out more and um, yeah. all kinds of ways and just to adopt that kind of a gentleness in our approach with each other and, and that's with ourselves as well as everybody else. And I, yeah, absolutely. I, I I totally agree. It's that that gentleness, that kind of attunement to what what's really going on for us. 
Um, and I think within families, you know, in, encouraging each other to be aware of our vulnerabilities. You know, you'll end up with, for example, my my husband Craig and I have um, mothers who are very health anxiety focused, you know, and very uh, worry a lot about health. So probably both of them have a bit of a vulnerability to harm and illness schema. Um, and my father has more of a, a, a an invincible kind of she'll be right kind of uh, denial maybe <laughs> attitude, more of a detached protector mode. And and I guess I found my mother's overbearing approach as a child um, to be, you know, to be a bit hard to take at times. So I more strongly identify with my father. So now when my husband. Uh, you know, expresses his vulnerability or his anxiety about what's going on. There's a part of me that I notice. That I just want to dismiss it. You know, I just want to go into my detached protector and no, no, it'll all be fine. It, it's not. It's not going to affect us. Um, which, of course, is a lot of rubbish. But you know, ultimately, it is about being able to just acknowledge our own vulnerability that's behind our coping modes. Being able to acknowledge that of other people around us to be gentle with ourselves to be gentle with each other and I guess you know it's also about our limited reparenting approach in in schema therapy isn't it's about being attuned about connecting with each other getting our needs met through connection rather than through um, being superheroes through being productive that none of those things ultimately will get our needs met um so you've said that you may, you've 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 listed some of the uh, some of the particular schemas that are probably going to uh, come to bear mostly in this situation, like vulnerability to harm and illness and feelings of abandonment and social isolation and so forth. How do you think these kind of schemas play out potentially? You know, in a therapeutic environment when you've mm. got say a client in front of you who's got presenting with history of trauma or an eating disorder or depression you know long-term patterns of depression what what do you ex- think you, we might see and what, what we might might we expect in um, this kind of context yeah it's interesting because some people of course are saying some clients are saying oh things are great <laughs> you know things are much better than they've ever been um you know introverts are finding that there's much less pressure people with yes. you know a lot of people who are the ones that are happy they're happy at home <laughs> the rest of us are being tortured yeah yeah um and even some people with eating disorders are saying you know actually things are better i'm 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 realizing, you know, the importance of connection with my family. I, I've got no space now to binge, for example, um, and actually that's helping me to reduce. So, so with some people, they're benefiting. Other people um, are finding they're more isolated. It's more of a trigger of, of loneliness, and that's often a trigger for binges is that sense of loneliness, that sense of, of disconnection with the world. So that is, you know, that, that for some people is, is making them more prone to um, to binge so it's it's often a, an emotional deprivation or abandonment schema that that's kind of linked there that is is being triggered by the current circumstances yeah any tips around that for working with um, both kind of groups of folk I think it's 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 really tapping into the the, the vulnerable child underneath isn't it and really helping them to connect to actually recognize that need for connection so it's that that 
tiny window between, I guess, when they feel the urge to to binge, for example, or to restrict or whatever their eating pattern is to exercise and, and recognising what, what do I actually need in this situation? What's the emotional need linked to this? What does my little self need? And actually finding a way of developing more of a sense of connection um, in amongst all that it, of what's happening. And I think, you know, you can still connect with people uh, and it's amazing the creative ways that that people are connecting. And I think we need to encourage our, our clients to, you know, become more involved, whether it's through online support groups, whether it's through uh, Zoom therapy groups, where, you know, these sorts of things uh, connect people together and, uh, and can be really powerful. Um, and I think, you know, even people on our street have been sitting out the front. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple just down the road sitting out the front of the house with a, a, a table and chairs and a glass of wine and they, they just have conversations with their neighbours across the other side of the road and they will sit there and have a glass of wine together. So, you know, there's all sorts of ways that people, I think, are being creative and uh, connecting with each other, you know, connecting with each other more probably than in the past. Um, the amount of conversations I've had with my neighbours just as we've been on the hills, walking on the hills behind our houses, you know, obviously keeping our social distance, but people are much more chatty, they've got more time to connect. And I guess we want to encourage our clients to really do that if they can. Obviously, it depends what country they live in. Um, if you're in Italy, you can't do that at all. You can't even get out of your house, obviously, unless you, you go into the supermarket. But even then, there are there are opportunities for connection and uh, it's it's finding ways to do that. Absolutely. I've certainly noticed some differences in my clients and I'd be really interested in your observations. Like some of my clients who are some homeless clients and those with chronic illnesses and the mm. severely introverted, some clients, it's like, well, you know, this is business as usual. You know, what's the big deal? Yeah. Um, we're kind of used to this. You, you kind of joined us now. Yes. And they've, they've still got their problems, but they haven't been thrown like some of my other clients who just are not coping at all and for them um, COVID has just put another uh, another uh, level, another story on their apartment building of pain and shame and panic and trauma. Yeah. You know, there's quite a difference in these groups of people. Have you, have you noticed? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I would say that a lot of my... A lot of my clients with, with eating disorders, uh, a significant proportion of my clients with severe anorexia, uh, have actually retreated more into a maybe a, a denial bubble of it won't you know it won't happen to us. Um, it's we're we're safe here, uh, kind of thinking pattern, which which maybe is protective in, in that particular in the you know in the context of a of a crisis or a trauma but other people uh definitely are, are feeling the stress of it feeling the strain feeling much more triggered uh and it's it, you know it's really really difficult for them and I think that this is where again telepsychology is is wonderful because it reaches people in their homes and you can get a sense of where they're spending their time you can actually see the environment they're in you know and how how much comfort there is, how much, you know, possibility of com uh, of connection there is, where they are when they're doing the relaxation that you're setting for them or the meditation, you know, wh where they settle and how comfortable that is. You can give a lot of feedback um, and also get a lot of information on families, family relationships and, and um, I guess, just the whole setup of the house and how that interacts with their mental health issues. 
Yes, it's certainly been the case that, you know, it's great, great to see people's homes and, you know, never seen before. There's, oh, yes. there's your cat. <laughs> and there's your lounge And that's, that's an important point, I think, Lisa, because, you know, if people have got their pets there, that's quite a comfort. You know, if you're doing trauma work with someone, um, they've got their, their cat or their dog nearby, you know, they're in their own territory. For some people, they actually, you know, feel much more comfortable doing that processing work in that environment than they would in our office. So, you know, to some extent, it's it's pressing on with this stuff. It's even more important to do that processing work, to do that, yeah. I must say the last couple of weeks I've uh, ventured into some scripting work um, with, um, via FaceTime of all, yes. of all platforms. Whatever works for my clients, whatever yes. they've got, I'm happy to do. So, yeah. You know, um, so and I have found uh, FaceTime no problem. I and, and rescripting no problem. Um, moved on with that quite well. Uh, is that has that been you've done this for years? So you're an old hand at it. Um, I imagine you found this to be the case as well. Yes, absolutely. As I say, I think with some some clients, they actually feel more comfortable doing it. Yeah. In their own. Okay. Well, what about chair work? What about chair work? Because I haven't got my head around chair work yet, and um, on on telehealth. So tell me, I've got my puppets. You know, I have my hand puppets. Yeah. I use those. But yeah. um, I need some help here. How am I going to do this chair work thing online over telehealth with my clients? I need some help here. Help me out. Well, I think you're right. I think puppets are great. Some people will use photos, you know, so they'll have a little picture of themselves as their little self uh, there that that um, they, they can talk directly to the photo. Um, or you can have, um, you know, you can also use the, the whiteboard. For example, if you're using Zoom, you can bring up the whiteboard and have um, introduced little pictures of the the different modes um but the, the way i generally do it you know so you can be very creative is, is what i'm saying but the way i generally do it is i'll either um set up a spot and we'll stand and get the person to move to those different spots and talk to these these other parts or i'll get them to draw the modes beforehand for homework so then we can actually okay. put you know put um so that they can actually hold that picture of that mode while they're when they move to that to that spot um, but yeah you can have spots on the floor that they stand on or you can have chairs and for example if you have um, sometimes I will put the, the the punishing chair that the punitive mode or the inner critic mode as, as we call it sometimes next to um, my chair and then they feel kind of separated from it so then they that gives them more power to fight that empty chair I'll, I'll put point the camera at that empty chair and just say, just go for it. And they they can often feel more powerful doing it that way because there is more of a barrier. It's not so immediate as as if that chair is in the room with them. Uh, but they can just go for it. Um, and I'll I'll kind of coach them with that. So, so it, uh, also speaks, yeah. it also speaks to a bunch of things like creativity and thinking outside the square, but also having a, a therapeutic safe place. Like you really need that you know a space to do the work where you're going to be private you know no one's yes. going to be interested know where it is really as long as it's it's private and 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 safe and safe for the for the client exactly and i think yeah and i think whereas normally we would be saying you know find a private quiet spot in the house um some people can't do that at the moment you know some people have got a house full of kids and all sorts of stuff going on you know and and really then you know, I guess that what you can do is use a headset, you know, so that 
nobody else can, so that the conversation is um, protected to some degree, go to the quietest spot that you can, of course. Uh, but, you know, you can also use backdrops. Uh, some of the, the teleconferencing um, software platforms have have uh, particular backdrops, which mean that, you know, even if there is a lot going on in the background, um, you don't necessarily, they can pr- keep that confidential if they want to. Uh, same with you, if you're, you know, if you need to set up a background. So you can you can play with it according to what's needed with your client and, and what they prefer, what makes them feel most comfortable, really. Ah, it seems like there are all kinds of ways to, to skin a cat, so to speak, and make it work. Um, I hadn't thought about that idea of uh, being within your own, that small space within your own head and um, if you can't create a, a safe, particularly a, a room of your own, you need to kind of create that in your head. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've, we've had a couple of clients who have said they haven't been able to have a safe space and ask if they could come in and work with a therapist at home, but now the clients come in, um, we're able to do that, provide that service, which is right. you know, kind of interesting kind of. Uh, reverse but still by telly and they've got they've got that correct, uh, safe space so safe oh that's great yeah yeah that's a really nice idea yeah yeah I wonder what you think about this but because you just it's just kind of I don't know there's no extraneous information in some ways you know um you know if you do an exercise with a client when you're really working on eating a certain food together or something yes. you know it's just if there's actually have you noticed it's sort of a closeness that goes on um that's above and beyond what you might feel in the flesh so Yes. Have you yeah. That? yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think this is this is the um, the ironic thing because I you know a lot of as I say a lot of people worry that there won't be the intimacy there won't be the the same alliance that you get with face to face therapy in in some ways there's more you know and many many clients will say that that there's there's more of a sense of intimacy um, and as you say you can do meal support you can do uh, you know exposure work there and then mm. with the patient in the actual situation without having to be there and, and nobody's at risk of, of catching anything off each other. Um, so it's it's uh, in some ways by the patient bringing you into their world, you know, that can create a, a stronger bond between you through it yeah, on their own. Yeah, that's right, that, the feeling of the support, we're there together, we're in this together, it's, we're going to make it through, we're going to work it out yeah. together. Uh, none of us have particularly yeah. answers but we're going to hang in together and I'm going to I'm going to be there to support you and as a therapist while recognizing our own vulnerability and not thinking of ourselves as being you know the cape crusader <laughs> you know but yes. um, knowing yes. what, what skills yeah. we have and what you know knowing our own, own vulnerabilities as well as our own strengths and you know keeping those in balance it seems to me the healthy adult seems to keep us in a very stable a stable way as stable as we possibly can be given given all that's going on it's kind of like finding a balance isn't it you know and sometimes you're going to wobble and sometimes you're not and it's going to be okay you know most yeah. of the yeah. time you know, you know and and what better time to practice being with vulnerability than in in the in the middle of a yeah. crisis like this you know this is this is kind of the time that that we all need to practice I guess being with uh, our experience being with our vulnerable child rather than as you say putting on our capes and trying to uh pretend to ourselves that you know that what's happening isn't going to affect us Um, and I think you know when it comes to our clients you know being able to being able to acknowledge our own vulnerability being able to show that and demonstrate that we're not perfect and we haven't got the solutions but using self-disclosure to help them 
you know, in in appropriate ways, obviously, to help them to recognise that what they're feeling is normal and yeah. that, you know, that everyone's struggling with this yeah, at I some think level. I found um, a, a greater connection uh, as possible with, you know, with uh, clients at the moment because of my own vulnerability for, is, is, is palpable because because yes. the way the world is one week's different from the next I'm not sure what's happening next week but you know uh we're all human and we're all in it together and we'll you know we'll do it together yeah very interesting well thank you so much for your time um it has been an absolute pleasure and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future thank you so much lisa it's been absolutely lovely talking with you have a great day hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll join us again soon for another conversation from the wide world of clinical psychology. Please subscribe to Clinically Thinking so you don't miss the next episode. You can also follow us and interact with our Facebook page. You may like to share feedback, comments or questions about the topic we've just listened to or even leave a suggestion for someone you'd like to hear from in the future. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. Thanks for listening.